This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of their lands and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Oh, good Iago, what shall I do to win my lord again? Good friend, go to him. For by this light of heaven, I know not how I lost him. Here I kneel, if e'er my will did trespass against his love, either in discourse of thought or actual deed, or that mine eyes, mine ears, or any sense delighted them in any other form, or that I do not yet, and ever did, and ever will, though he do shake me off to beggarly divorcement, love him dearly, comfort forswear me. Unkindness may do much, and his unkindness may defeat my life, but never taint my love. I cannot say, whore. It doesn't bore me now I speak the word. To do the act that might the addition earn, not the world's mass of vanity could make me. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Desdemona from Act 4, Scene 2 of Othello, read by our guest this week. She is one of Australia's most popular and successful screen and theatre actors, earning an impressive collection of awards, including four gold logies for most popular personality on Australian television. She recently starred in the touring festival show Girl from the North Country, as well as the Network 10 comedy series How to Stay Married and Bell Shakespeare's production of Hamlet. After graduating from the WA Academy of Performing Arts, she appeared in a few TV pilots before landing the role of Maggie Doyle in Blue Healers, which went on to become one of the most popular and enduring programs on Australian TV, making her a household name. Her other screen credits include The Potato Factory, XPM, It's a Date, Sea Patrol, Rake, MDA, and Hell Has Harbour Views, to name a few. On stage, she starred as Maria in The Sound of Music, which she followed with her Green Room award-winning performance as Sally Bowles in Cabaret. She earned a Helpman nomination for The King and I, and has also appeared in Shane Warne the Musical, South Pacific, Into the Woods, Guys and Dolls, and many more. It is my great pleasure to welcome Lisa McCune. Lisa, welcome to Speak the Speech. Oh, it is really, really lovely to be joining you, James. I, Bill Shakespeare is just, it holds the dearest place in my heart. It really does. And, and you guys are the most generous company in the country. Lisa, you're you're so lovely. You know, you and I have been wanting to have this chat for ages. And then you remember back in Melbourne, I think earlier in the year, then you got COVID and then half the cast of Girl from the North Country got COVID and you shut down. I mean, what, what a turbulent time. How did you get through that? It was really interesting, actually, because that time we were supposed to meet, we'd actually managed to survive through the Omicron outbreak in Sydney without it breaking yes. into the company. We kind of continued our lockdown and managed to do basically from the end of November through to when we left Sydney in March without having to miss a show because of COVID. Mm. But then, of course, when it gets in, it gets in. And um, interestingly, in an older theatre, you know, when you kind of start going into those older theatres and you can't isolate Mm. people away from each other. But, yeah, look, it's been extraordinary and there's been so much time to reflect and appreciate and 
I mean, I'm one of yeah. those people that always find something good out of the bad. And uh, But I do remember mm-hmm. when we were doing Hamlet, which is, you know, a couple of years ago now, but that was the beginning of the lockdown. We shut Hamlet down yeah. and we were the last show yeah. in the Opera House. I'll never forget walking mm-hmm. out of the Opera House. We were, it was, it was, it was deserted. And I actually yeah. stood back and yeah. looked at the house. I actually get quite emotional thinking about it, actually. And I looked at this, mm-hmm. this iconic venue and just went... Without the people and the words and the music coming out of it, it was a building, mm. and I and I it kind mm. of felt very empty. It was really extraordinary, yeah. actually. I will never forget yeah. that feeling yeah. of an empty opera house. Yeah, it was a very strange feeling, wasn't it? And in those days, kind of leading up to the lockdown, when everyone was really nervous, didn't quite know what this COVID thing was. It, it, people were dying, and and. And we didn't know whether there would be a lockdown, whether they'd shut us down or not. And you'd see some people in the audience, and then someone would cough, and everyone would get nervous. And um, it was it was a scary, it was a terrifying time. It really was. And there we were um, doing a Shakespeare and reflecting. I mean, the cast. I think we got about sixteen shows, and of course, Hamlet was such mm. a beautiful production, being received so well. And you know, yeah. here I was doing my first Shakespeare and loving it. Um, and of course, Harriet. Mm doing the extraordinary job, you know, kind of uh, carrying that, without carrying that on a back of, with such might. Mm. But, yeah, no, look, it was an extraordinary time. And, and as I was saying, reflecting the cast on in Shakespeare's time, you know, they would have dealt with this often and, you know, yeah. being touring companies, yeah. I think I heard someone say they would have just upped up, moved and just gone to another town. And Yeah, they were very flexible. They had to deal with it constantly. Theatres were being shut down all the time during his, uh, his day. So we really got a sense and a feeling of what that might have been like. Um, we're going to talk about Desdemona in a sec because I know you love this character and this scene, but um, but we're we're on Hamlet now. So tell me about what that was like when Peter Evans asked you to play Gertrude, and you hadn't done Shakespeare since drama school. Uh, what was that? What, what did you feel? Well, even in drama school, for me, it was something that was touched on. But I, because I had done um, music theatre, we can't, and I was so young. I was. Mm. Um, I, I think I auditioned with the Desdemona piece actually for drama school, really, which wow. is why I chose it, you know, doing Desdemona. I was 16 when I auditioned for drama school, so 17 yeah. when I started, having no idea. But And we didn't really do a lot of Shakespeare. So for me it became uh, an area that I, I used to corner Peter at opening nights and I'd see him and I'd worked with him previously as a director um, at MTC mm. and said, I really want to do some Shakespeare. Uh, because wow. I uh, love yeah. the musicality yeah. of it and I love there is so much unknown and I knew that it was a bit of a risk for me because it's the one area, that and stand-up comedy are the two, the, the two areas I haven't <laughs> kind of dipped my toe. And I, I really, really wanted to give it a go and I must say I absolutely loved it. I don't think it's... I, I feel like I've not even scraped the surface of, of where to go with mm-hmm. it. And if someone, my dream, I think I said to you guys when I was there, the idea of a dream for me would be to come and work as an in-house actor for a year or two mm-hmm. um, in a Shakespeare company. I think it would be invaluable really? experience. Yeah, if someone said to me tomorrow, come and do you know some Shakespeare and rep and go back to back a little bit like you do with the players, that to me uh-huh. would be a brilliant place to learn. Uh, Gertrude is a fascinating character because... Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of ambiguity around her. Um, she seems very happy in her marriage uh, with Claudius, even though Hamlet is so upset about it. Um, and yet, of course, in that closet scene, there's that huge um, emotional turmoil and upset uh, when Hamlet, um, you know, accuses her of being 
unfaithful to the memory of his father and uh, and she seems very conflicted about that as well. How did you work with Harriet and Peter to really find the heart and essence of that scene? Well, because I, I really loved the idea that she was actually quite... Uh, she was quite a formidable woman as far as she knew how to play perhaps the game <clears throat> and she was quite powerful. I, I find her that, you know, sometimes power is not overt. Sometimes the power, and particularly during those times, perhaps it was as a woman she really had to uh, be quite... Manipulative is probably too strong a word, but she would have had to know how to work her court and I think that yeah, she did. And I think that she perceived that marriage was a way to keep her, by marrying Claudius, straight, it kept her in power. Then she's the mother of the, you know, the king of, of Hamlet and the future <coughs> king. And then she's also married to the king. So it kept her in, in court as a, a powerful place rather than, you know, disappearing or having somebody overthrow Hamlet. I think that she kind of sensed a feeling of control. But you definitely don't think that she had anything to do with it do you like anything to do with bumping off the old hamlet and uh like because some people say that she already had a relationship with claudius before and she was part of the whole conspiracy and so oh i don't know see i I, because i love that i mean i love the fact that shakespeare is so incredibly complex but really i do wonder it may not have served her purpose for her son's trajectory to do that but then again i do like the conspiracy that she sexually found Claudius quite, um, you know, there was something about intriguing. that was intriguing. Yeah. yeah, that's a great word to use for it. But then, you know, we look at Shakespeare and the way he is able to just tangle, if he tangles so well, you know, he, he knots the, he knots that ball wool so tightly that you have to really yeah. tease it out. And so maybe, and isn't that great that an audience can come and some people can believe one thing and maybe to yes. leave the ambiguity is a really wonderful thing for an audience. I think sometimes we make it too clear how great that an audience can see one thing and, you know, some people in that audience can take it one yeah. way. Someone might take it another. I love that. I love that too. I think that's fantastic. Lisa, how do you do a good death scene? Gertrude has to die by poison uh, it, it's tricky because you you got to drink that wine and then suddenly she doesn't feel too well and Shakespeare gives you kind of half a scene to stagger around and then finally die. How, how do you start and finish a, a good death scene like that? I don't know. I think so. If it's snowing on stage, it definitely helps. There's, I think it started snowing towards snowing. the end. It was snowing. I mean, at the end, I think of Hamlet, it's so fabulous because everybody's falling off the... It's just there's so much going on. There's a sword fight. You know, there's we had a sword fight going mm. on and so there's a lot going on which makes it easier but I think if you've got that slight comedy bone you've got to be so super careful because it can feel rather comical um but you know you go into you go into a zone don't you I mean as an actor it's the only thing that protects you out there is to completely give over to to where you're supposed to be at but um, mm. Wouldn't it be great to do the comedy version of? Yeah, the comedy version of Hamlet would be uh, hilarious. But the the mother son relationship is obviously so super crucial in this play. Uh, do you reckon you have more of an insight on that because you have children personally, or is that not relevant? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think that that as a parent and as a mother mm. with sons, you absolutely and. You know, you, yeah. you look at the time, and interestingly now, too, watching the Queen give, you know, seeing the passing of the Queen and it going to Charles, you actually understand that lineage of, lineage of royalty and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the passing on of that and the absolute uh, 
precision and the history mm-hmm. involved and there's a lot more mm-hmm. at stake than just a mother-son relationship here. It's actually the yes. throne yeah. and it's the the duty and all of that stuff, you know. Yeah, but it's both of those things working together, isn't it? It is it is that big political um, world but then also Shakespeare zooms right down into the domestic relationship between a mother and a son and a son who looks to be about 18 years old early on, finding his own way in the world, trying to assert his own independence. I mean, how old are you? My kid is just about to turn 18, so I'm so I'm right in the middle of all that. Yeah, well, I've got one son who's 21 and the other one who is the same as yours, 18. And, you know, yeah. I mean, what do they say about a teenage brain's not fully formed until someone's 23? But, okay, you know, yeah. interestingly <laughs> for Hamlet too, you know, when you, I've, I've been reading a lot about World War Two and, and, and actually doing a documentary where I've voiced about a lot of returned soldiers and it's really interesting, mm. <clears throat> the trauma that, you know, a teenage brain going through such incredible yeah. trauma and you can mm. understand, I, I mean, I really see why Hamlet did everything that he did. I, 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 I love, I love the, the, the kind of confusion and... The, the misunderstanding and then seeing his mother with another man and being disgusted by that and I, I kind of get the rage. He doesn't yeah. have that, yeah. he doesn't have the critical thinking to, as, as intelligent as he is. That's what's yes. so wonderful yeah. about it. And, you know, the other, you know, a fascinating part too is Shakespeare when he was writing at this time is I guess, you know, a lot of young kings were ascending the throne, you know, for, mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. for, uh, was it around the Elizabeth, Elizabethan time if Elizabeth became queen, but her brother, her half-brother, mm. was he yeah, ascended the young. throne yeah. very young and then died. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm. so they didn't live long lives. And so I guess young kings, Hamlet may have been considered well within the range of being an adequate age. Yeah. I, I don't know. But so much at play during those times. But I think particularly for women it was a really fascinating time. And I, uh, and interesting that Shakespeare, interestingly that Shakespeare was writing during the Elizabethan times. I wonder if she yes. was intrigued by his work, because he he really yeah. goes close to the bone sometimes, doesn't he? It must have been dangerous. Oh yeah, absolutely, certainly. But he knew exactly how to toe that line, I think, and and make sure that he was just on the right side of it, while constantly thinking critically and undermining his own work, and and uh, and always providing a, an alternative. Would there have been a team like um, checking his work, James? Like, would they have had a, a royal, like, assessing his work before it went to plays? Because of course there was no yeah. television. People would have gone to see it. It could have actually swung people's mm. opinions. Every play had to be passed by the royal censor. The censor had to look over it, make sure there wasn't any blasphemy in it, anything against the royal family. And if that was okay, they would give it the stamp of approval and then they could perform the play. But yes, it, everything was checked before it went on. But I think what Shakespeare was so clever at was kind of um, very sneakily getting around that by by putting stuff in his play that might not be picked up by the censor, but perhaps by some of the more discerning members of the audience. So perhaps that's why it feels so naughty sometimes, you know, like there's so much innuendo and you're leaning on it in different ways. But I think that's what's so remarkable about it is, I mean, he does write beautifully and that's what I loved about doing Hamlet was coming in with you guys. I think we spent a week on the table sitting around books and I just, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Well, speaking of the words in Hamlet, Gertrude, has an extraordinary speech towards the end of the play where she describes the death of Ophelia, 
this kind of sets the scene, the stunning beauty of the um, of the the river and the the trees and the plants all around there first, and then what happened to her. Um, I just wonder how how does Gertrude know all this stuff? Where does it come from? It's always been a mystery to me that scene of how does she know? I loved the idea that in some way she was involved in that or knew of it or saw it or maybe, mm. you know, there, there's yeah. something about it that never sat quite right with me that she just heard that, you know, the, the way that she does describe it so vividly and is she that cunning that she, I, I did like that. Um, I like that way myself and, and I think, but, but it is, it's that beautiful, um, it is such a beautiful speech. It really is and really kind of Shakespeare at his most poetic in a way for that character something so emotional she she's seen um ophelia in her kind of quote unquote madness and now she's seen her in her demise there's i think something has changed in gertrude something shifts in her because then at the graveside she says i wish you would have been my hamlet's wife um uh, I, I should have strewn thy wedding not not thy um not thy grave so but at the same time so did she realize that that the madness of ophelia you know is is there something in that 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 it's better that she's gone rather than um at yeah, court she was suffering and suffering i i don't know i mean it was a, it was a tough time it was tough times yeah. back then but it is so beautiful i mean that speech inspire has inspired art it's in you know it's yeah. it is just so beautiful You are listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and today I'm speaking with Lisa McCune. Lisa, let's talk about Desdemona. You love this speech, and this is the first one you chose when we talked about um, talked about doing this episode. What do you love about Desdemona so much? I love the story about this because of everybody's perception. You know, everybody in this story, she is innocent, but Iago manages to poison Othello's Mm -hmm. belief and I don't know I've never I've actually never seen this performed this play I'm sorry I haven't seen any of your productions but I I love the fact that his perception of her shifts and he he ends up killing her and she is begging this man because she does love him and she hasn't been um she hasn't been sleeping with Cassius and yet that's what Iago is accusing her of and and I, and I love it because the words are so beautiful and she loves him and says that you can be unkind, you can accuse me of these things, but it will not change the fact that I love you. And that loyalty, that sense of that, that she just gives everything to him. and She feels very compassionate. I mean, she feels compassionate towards him, certainly. But I think and Amelia, her friend, says at some point kind of, you know, shake yourself out of it. <laughs> Why are you kowtowing to these men who treat you badly why, why don't you just say no I've had enough and I'm I'm not going to take it anymore and uh, I don't have to be the perfect wife and I'm going to behave differently now why do you think she does it because I, again I kind of sometimes think that it's not weakness that that sometimes what we perceive as weakness is actual strength yeah. it's um and it was only ever I mean the, the weirdest letter I read from Catherine Hepburn and she wrote Catherine Hepburn wrote a letter about Spencer Tracy or in some biography I read and and it really shifted the perspective and she talked about their relationship which was one of such great love you assume from mm-hmm. their time together and I'll never forget reading that and thinking 
she's right in saying that she loved him so much that that the strength was in actually staying, not leaving. And I thought yeah, right. yeah. perhaps that is is where the strength is, is that that loyalty and that degree of putting oneself to the side is is um, not weakness at all. It's actually strength. Yeah, perhaps I don't know. I mean, it's not. Maybe that's why Desdemona does that. So maybe it's not weakness. Maybe that's what love is. Is actually. Yeah. What do you think about her? Do you think she's she's weak? No, I don't think she's weak. Um, I think she's certainly naive. I, I think she never thinks that he could actually behave in this way, and everything is a shock to her. And Amelia is trying to kind of shake her and wake her up in a way. But she does have a strength, especially because Amelia gives a, a wonderful speech where she says, you know, if men behave badly, well, then we women should too. That, that's how we should behave. And she has this uh, amazing line at the end of that where she says, yes, but let me look at their bad behavior and actually learn what not to do. So so she actually flips on on, on its head and decides to learn from their behaviour, not to imitate them, but to actually uh, be something different, which I think is an interesting take on that. Let's look at this speech now, Lisa. Uh, On the page, it looks really interesting because there's a lot of kind of full stops and uh, exclamation points, uh, ends of thoughts in the middle of lines. And to me, when when Shakespeare does that, it, it kind of means like the thoughts are tumbling over one another. He, she, she keeps topping herself um, in terms of the thoughts. One thought is not enough, so she tops that with another thought and then she tops that with another thought. Yeah, because I love that section where it goes through uh, either in discourse of thought or actual deed or that mine eyes, mine ears or any sense. To like, you're right, she's tumbling, she's trying to find a way through. Yeah, so why don't we go back to if e'er my will did trespass against his love because she's listing and Shakespeare, again, loves his lists. So she's listing the different things. If I ever did this, if I ever did this, if I ever did this, each one tops the last one um, because what she's finally aiming towards is that comfort for swear me. I, 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 then I, would, I would never do these things, she's saying. I would never do these things. I'm always going to be loyal. So let's go back from if I if e'er my will did trespass and that's really get us in. Can I also say, I think it's so fascinating that she says, oh, good Iago, and then good friend. When he uses the word yeah. good twice in two lines, you know, and he's the, he's the cat of the whole, the whole thing. That's right. He's so evil. And yet everyone throughout this play calls him good and honest. And, and, uh, and that's, what he, that's the way he's played it. And he's tricked everyone. If am I will did yeah. trespass against his love, either in discourse of thought or actual deed, or that mine eyes, mine ears, or any sense delighted them in any other form, or that I do not yet and ever did and ever will, though he do shake me off to beggarly divorcement, love him dearly, comfort forswear me. Yeah, great. Okay, so comfort forswear me is the point of that whole, there's, there's like four or five lines there and... I mean, she never, she didn't need to say that all that. She could have said, "If e'er my will did trespass against his love, comfort forswear me." But she's got. But one line is not enough, and two lines are not enough, and three lines are not enough. So just one more time on that, and really try and add and accumulate and build that feeling, driving towards comfort forswear me. If e'er my will did trespass against his love, either in discourse of thought or actual deed, or that mine eyes, mine ears, or any sense delighted them in any other form, or that I do not yet and ever did and ever will, though he do shake me off to beggarly divorcement, love him dearly, comfort forswear me. Yeah, fantastic. That's great. That's really, really strong. And then 
you can see that there's a there's a full stop in the middle of the line, but never taint my love, full stop. And then she says, I cannot say whore. So again, when there's a full stop in the middle of the line, for me, that means the next thought really kind of jumps on the, the back of the, of the previous thought. It's almost like there's no gap, there's no pause. Um, it, it is a new thought, but it comes in straight away. So let's go from, un so let's go from um, unkindness may do much and then see where that word comes from. She says, I cannot say that word, but and yet it kind of comes pouring out of her. Unkindness may do much, and his unkindness may defeat my life, but never taint my love. I cannot say whore. It doesn't bore me now I speak the word. To do the act that might the addition earn, not the world's mass of vanity could make me. Yes, that was really great. And then one more thing there. See how he's got the word abhor on the set, on the line after. So obviously that's a play on words. I think she's being deliberate there with the with the choice because she could say I cannot say whore. It does loathe me now. I speak the word. She could have said that, but she chooses the word abhor uh, to um, kind of resonate with that that previous line. So let's go again from the same place and really kind of give us that word. I cannot say whore. It does bore me now. I speak the word. Okay, let's go again. One more time. One more I time. cannot say whore. It does abhor me now. I speak the word. What do you think? I, I think it does abhor. Uh, look, because if you look at the rhythm, da -dun -da -dun, it does abhor me now. I speak the word. So, so th there's an emphasis on the second syllable of that word. That's why I think it resonates. It does abhor me now. I speak the word. Yeah, yeah. Really lengthening that vowel to make sure that it um, there's a disgust for her in saying that word and that's what she's been accused of and it's just so awful and she's just putting that out there. I love getting into the nitty-gritty <laughs> nitty of Shakespeare's language like this because the more you kind of chip away at it, the more you see all the little tricks that he's kind of left there, the little nuggets. It's like a cryptic crossword. It's like the little clues. Yeah. Like that's so interesting about the full stop. When you, when she says to not uh, to do the act that might the addition earn, not the world's massive vanity could make me. Mm. I mean, I've got mm. what. What do you think that the not the world's massive vanity could make me is? I I kind of I I understand it, but I. I I cannot say whore, it does abhor me now I speak the word, to do the act that might the addition earn, not the world's mass of vanity could make me. Yeah, look, I I, th I think it means that to do the act, to, to do whatever he has accused me of, not the world's mass of vanity. So all the, all the material wealth and goods in the whole world couldn't make me do that. She can't imagine it and that's what's so awful and tragic is, is that... Um, they're at complete cross purposes. And often this happens in Shakespeare, doesn't it? If only the characters communicated a little bit better. If only they sat down and he said, listen, I've heard this thing about you and Cassio and Iago said this and she would be like, that, "That's what are you talking about? Of course not. You know, I love you. If only they had that conversation. But they're so busy than... saying beautiful things. I mean, it takes a lot of brain power to think up these extraordinary words. Surely they're busy. That's right. But also the men are too busy believing each other rather than actually having conversations with the women. It's the same problem in uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Claudio, instead of actually going and talking to Hero, fully believes that she's cheating on him and shames her in the wedding, you know. So we, do, we just need a bit more communication. <laughs> yeah, because at the time, it's, you know, that, that at the time would have, was so extraordinarily the wrong thing to do. You know, like that would not be good. I mean, they're not stoned to death or anything, mm. but it's certainly 
was not, um, was very different because, of course, religion was it played such an important part part of their life too. Do you know it's interesting yeah. too, James? We, you know Netflix and all of these shows. There's so many shows that really are delving into this time now, but but we're changing the lens in which we uh, are looking at it. We're looking at a at a lot of this stuff from the female perspective, and we're strengthening yes, yes. the women in this time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it yeah. is a, it's quite fascinating when you sit down and watch them. A lot of them are told. Uh, and really amplify the women and their strength. Yep, I think that's crucial. I think that's really important. And and that's there in Shakespeare as well if we look for it. And, and you know, obviously there are fewer female parts than, than male parts. That is true. But you certainly find that strength and resilience in many of these uh, female characters as well. Did you do any Shakespeare at school? Was it around in your house, in your family? When did you first encounter it? Oh, I actually tried to find this for today. My mum had the most beautiful old Shakespeare book. Like there were photographs of Ellen Terry and all of the great yeah, English wow. actors in this book. And I've got it. It's it's so it's all falling apart, but it's the most beautiful edition of a Shakespeare. Okay. And I used to just sit and look at the pictures. Um, this was mm. you know my in my early teens. And then when I had to audition for drama school with a Shakespeare, where I did Desdemona, which is so funny. <laughs> um, I remember going through and looking for a speech that I didn't think anybody else would do. Um, mm. And I th- I actually think that I cobbled together because my memory of starting off the speech we've done today was, I think I actually cut and pasted a little bit of it. And I remember starting it off with, upon my knees, what does your speech import? I understand a fury in your words, but not the words. I remember the beginning of it. Uh, So I've cut and pasted that because she talks about here I kneel later on. I've obviously thought as a teenager, Mm -hmm. oh, she's talking about being on her knees. So I'll just Mm -hmm. put that and it's spliced it. Um, But, yeah, yeah, no, I loved looking through that book. And I I think that it's just, you know, that's why I guess... You know, you're the man, James. Your your knowledge of Shakespeare, I could sit and listen to you talk all day. Like if you ever decide to do a, a, an offshoot podcast of working on speeches with <laughs> actors, I will totally put my hand up for it and I will make mistakes. And, you know, you go back to doing uh, a play or anything after you do some Shakespeare and everything's just a little clearer and it's a little yeah, more precise. Yeah. And the way, the way you start to look at a script is really is more potent, I think. But, you know, coming out of drama school, obviously, it wasn't to be for, for you to, to get into Shakespeare straight away. You started in TV and obviously musical theatre as well. But did you ever think while you were there at drama school that, you know, I'm going to become a four-time Logie winner, I'm going to be on the biggest Australian TV show, I'm going to become a household name. Was that ever in your mind or did that just sort of fall in your lap? No, and I think that that's been always the thing for me is that I love doing what I do for the work. I don't do it for yeah. any other, you know, those things are, they're, they're wonderful side notes. They might sometimes keep you working because you have a certain profile, mm. which is wonderful. But for me, it's always been about the work. Again, if someone had a, kind of offered me, you know, Lisa, there's an opportunity coming up for an Australian actor to go and study with the RSC over in the UK. Yeah, We've yeah, been there yeah. in a shot, you know, but it's funny mm. how life does take you on a journey and you're silly to pass opportunities sometimes if they present and they did. And in Australia, yeah. our work uh, pool is not huge. And so you take what's in front of you. And I've been really fortunate, but at this stage of my life to be able to go back and take the time and do some of this is really wonderful. But you have to do so, I think, without... Um, I think sometimes as we get older we fear not getting it right and and particularly if you gain a certain, I guess, profile, 
there's a real fear, like me doing Hamlet. I, I was a little fearful that um, I, people would yeah. really attack me for that um, because it was yeah, out right. of my comfort zone and it was new to me. So I think that you have to almost be braver as you get older because the mistakes yeah. are... They, the ripple on the pond is sometimes a little greater and you fear more. So. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a real boldness and brashness when you're young and I'm never going to make a mistake, I'm going to be uh, brilliant. Then, yeah, then as you get older, you start to realise what you don't know. You, you, you start to know more about what you don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, between 97 and 2000, you won the Gold Logie four years in a row. You were obviously the most popular um, uh, performer uh, in Australia. What's it like being a celebrity and having that invasion? I mean, you say it's all about the work and that's what you love and you're an actor, but then there's an invasion into your private personal life. People want to know more about you. Uh, the press wants to know about you. The public wants to know about you. You have to be perfect. You have to be a certain way, the way that you're portrayed. What What does that feel like? Is there a lot of pressure around that? I do think it's so funny that, um, you know, the the attention to my life, I guess, um, came at a time when it, when, it, when it did kind of go off the rails a little bit. But, hey, that's why we yeah. go to see Shakespeare. We, do, we, like, we like the underbelly of life. We like audiences want to see the troubles because we like to see how people put it back together. And, yeah, um, yeah. and I did, you know, I've, I've talked about it in the past in my private life. You hit a speed bump in life and everybody does. And unfortunately, mm. sometimes if you have a profile that's played out in the public arena, but I certainly wouldn't have changed my working life because of it, because I've loved mm. what I, I love what I do. I think yeah. it's sometimes harder for like characters in a Shakespeare play. Perhaps it's harder for the people around you sometimes if they, if they're caught mm. up in the wash and that's yeah. not fair and that's not yeah, right. Children, yeah. yeah, but yeah. that's okay because that you it makes you sometimes focus on on getting that part right. And no life is perfect, and it does. And you know, I, I think I've always had my feet on the ground. I, I never, you know, I, I used to like you talk about those nights when you win logies year after year. And I remember always the minute I won, I went straight to the cab line outside of Crown and waited in the cab line. And year after year, I'd see the same guy, the, the concierge was out the front. The same guy was there every year and he said, you're back again. Yeah. be standing there with the logies <laughs> waiting for a cab. And it, that to me felt like I wasn't letting myself get too big for my boots because then okay. I just yeah. didn't think that I could see things the way I need to as a performer. Like I always jump on public transport and I always try to be an observer in life because I think that that makes my work better and it doesn't, it doesn't disconnect yeah. me because you've got to stay connected because if you lose yeah. that connection, then you don't have your you, – you can't access your fuel – you yeah. can only then yeah. you start then no, you start no. making it up. Yeah, right. No, I'm sure that I'm sure that's right. And uh, obviously, you know, you excelled very early in in screen work, but on stage as well. What's the difference as an actor, as a performer, between doing well on stage and on screen? Is it the same kind of thing, or is it very different performance style? I uh, they are really different, and I think that they require such different disciplines from the performer. Yeah. Uh, okay. I love I love working on screen because I think that it becomes a director and a camera and an editor's domain as well with the performer. Uh, mm -hmm. And I and I and that's almost like a chess game because you have to uh, compile it in such a you know everything's cut up. It's shot out of sequence. It's like taking a Shakespeare play and shooting, you know, the end first because you can't do it because the weather's going to be bad. And so it, it, ta it takes a lot of um, 
you, you have to use a lot of your brain to try and make that performance feel right, I guess. Um, but with, and, and similarly with theatre, you do that, but it takes a lot of um, fitness and sustained uh, performance, really, isn't it? For three hours, up to three hours, you can be on a stage and, and that to me is really... And you've got a live audience. But I love what I love about an audience is that every night you can go back out and I use the word manipulate again, it's not that, but you can play, you, you can go out and you can play and you can go, oh, I didn't quite get the reaction there tonight, perhaps if I do this tomorrow night and you can kind of always try to make it perfect and you know that you're in a great company of people when you all go backstage and go, how about we just do, with a director, of course, James, but, you know, you, you tinker, <laughs> you, you're constantly tinkering yeah, course, and... But but all the while trying to I guess make sure that you're doing what the the script writer intended in the first place that you're achieving what the overall the piece is is what what they're desiring for the audience to mm. to receive that that day. But every audience is different too, so you don't know what the day they're all done on a Thursday compared to a Tuesday night. They are different, you know. Of course they are, yeah. But then one thing I love about screen is that. You can catch lightning in a bottle. If you nail that take, that one take that is just perfect and the light's right and your performance is spot on and and the, the, the camera has just caught it just so, then that's it forever. You've, you've got that, you know. That, whereas in theatre it's so fleeting. You, you catch something and then it's gone and then a, a performance is gone forever. So so I think there's... there's... It's sad to think about that. That makes me very emotional. But <laughs> at the same time there's something that's kind of magical about that, the fact that it has yeah. disappeared and the only people that have taken it with them um, were there. And that's, that's a well, shared yeah, contract that's between... You know the players and the people that night, and that and it's that's wonderful. very special. Like I still remember seeing um, a production of the Mahabharata um, in in WA as a teenager, and that really inspired yeah, wow. me. They did an all night quarry production, mm. and uh, mm. and I went with my mum and for the festival of Perth, and we sat and watched this all Is that night. The Peterbrook, the Peterbrook. Yeah, it was extraordinary. And I remember that really clearly because it did, I think it kind of changed the journey, the, the, the path of my life a little bit because I thought, wow, that's remarkable. I'd love to do that. Lisa, it's been so great talking to you. Just before we wrap up, though, it's time for the final five, five quick questions, five quick answers. Here we go. Number one, are you, Lisa McCune, the lover, the villain or the fool? Oh, I like, can I be a bit of everything? Because I think people are a bit of everything. I do think that characters and people and particularly Shakespearean characters are maybe a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Lisa, what's your most underrated Shakespeare play you'd like to see a bit more of? Oh, I I have seen it twice and I loved it. I loved The Winter's Tale. Who's your favourite artist you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with already? I'd love to work with Kate Mulvaney. I didn't. I didn't realize you hadn't. You hadn't worked together before. On, She's on a beautiful performer, and I love what she writes. And I think that she is. She's a, a lovely soul with a great energy, and I think a beautiful performer. Yes, I'd like to work with Kate McLean. What is your dream Shakespeare role you'd love to play? Oh, I'd love to do Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, I probably yeah. couldn't play yeah. Puck, could what I? Do you want to, well, of course you can. Anyone can play Puck. Of course you can. <laughs> you want to play Puck? Done. Yeah, or Good. otherwise a, a sword carrier in the back of any Bell Shakespeare production. <laughs> Can be arranged. Finally, Lisa, if you weren't an artist, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, I think I, 
I would uh, I think I became an actor because I wanted to be a lot of things when I was young but now right. I look back I think I would have loved curating um, galleries I love oh, yeah yeah I love I love mm. seeing things stored and kept and honored and you know like I if I panned around my room right now I've got like books and stuff and I'm a real collector and I love seeing yeah, it all right. exhibited in a beautiful way and cared for yeah Beautiful, Lisa. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thank you, James. And uh, and please take me up on the uh, Let's Dissect the Speech and we should do some of that. That would be fun. Sounds good. We will. We will, Lisa. Well, uh, Lisa, friends, listeners, that's it for the third season of Speak the Speech. Thank you for coming with me on this journey. We've got 36 episodes online now, so do go back and check out the ones you may have missed. My special thanks to Camillo Zanoni, who has edited each episode of this podcast with great care and skill. Thanks also to our producing team, Emily Stokes and Emma White, without whom Speak the Speech simply wouldn't happen. Next year is the 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio, and Bell Shakespeare is celebrating with a blockbuster year of performances, education programs and special events. Check it all out on our website, bellshakespeare.com.au. Bye for now, and I'll see you in the theatre in 2023. 